Welcome to the Lionheart Podcast. I'm Jenny Madison and this is episode 10. I'm so happy to bring you this interview with David Mickey. David is the author of Buddhism for Busy People, Hurry Up and Meditate, Mindfulness is Better Than Chocolate and the Dalai Lama's Cat Series. David is also a mindful safari guide and takes groups of people across to the wilderness in Africa to experience the animals and the land from a space of mindfulness and sentience awareness. In this episode, we go deep into the detail of the nature of our primordial mind and what it truly means to live a life of mindfulness and compassion. We also discuss meditation, the many benefits, including its powerful effect on improving immune system. There is also a lot to learn about the Buddha's tradition and the many beautiful expressions that are used. David also touches on the positive impact that the COVID-19 experience is actually having on our environment. Welcome, David, to the Lionheart Podcast. Thank you very much. I'm really curious in your description, the common thread of the books that you're writing, what would you say that is? Well, I would say it's Buddha Dharma or Buddha's teachings. Uh, Dharma is a collective word for all his teachings. It also means the truth. And uh, that is manifest in different forms. So I've, broadly speaking, I've written a number of non-fiction books, perhaps the best known being Buddhism for Busy People, Hurry Up and Meditate. Buddhism for Pet Lovers is the most recent one. And then novels like the Dalai Lama's Cat series is definitely the best known one, and uh, or, or series of books, and also The Magician of Lhasa. So quite a variety of different things, but they are all different manifestations of my passion for communicating the essence of Buddha's teachings. But you communicate it really well. I've read a few of your books, but you also practice. And that's a very important part of the Buddhist teachings, isn't it? Well, it wouldn't be at all authentic if I didn't walk the talk. The emphasis on Buddhism is always about doing rather than thinking and believing. There's a famous story about if you're caught in a storm outside a cave, Obviously, the story comes from rural Tibet. And if you were to say, you know, there was a downpour, you know, thunder and lightning and waters flooding down. And if you were to say, I'm taking refuge in the cave, I'm taking refuge in the cave, but you stood there getting soaked. Well, that would be an idiotic thing to do when there's a cave right there. What you do is you actually get into the cave. That's where you take refuge. What you say is actually secondary to what you do. And that's an illustration, if you like, of Buddhist approach, which is that it's all about the doing not about the talking. I think in Western society, because we are so fixated on the externals, we tend to focus on what you say you believe, what you think about this and that. And that is regarded as very much secondary to what you actually do. Mm. So what would some of the core Buddhist teachings be? And really, it is a way of life, isn't it? A way of experiencing life, a way of expressing, a way of being, a way of doing would you say? Yes, definitely. Buddha himself was once asked to summarize his teachings in what I think was probably the world's very first soundbite. Um, <laughs> and he summarized all his teachings in seven words. He said, abandon harmfulness, cultivate goodness, subdue your mind. And what he meant by that was, even if you can't do anything positive, try and stop doing negative things. And then, so that's abandon harmfulness, cultivate goodness, Goodness comes in many different forms, but think generosity, virtue, patience, and so forth. And subdue your mind refers to taking charge of what goes on in your mind, specifically through meditation and mindfulness. Everything starts, the foundation of all our behavior of all kinds, whether it's 
thoughts, speech or, or actions arises from being mindful because if you're not in control of what's actually happening, then who knows? So uh, mindfulness is implicit in the kind of foundation, if you like, of all dharma. Mm. And just to clarify, dharma is truth. We did touch on that, yes? Yeah. Dharma is often used as a collective term for Buddha's teachings, but it also translates as truth. So sometimes called another translation is cessation and the path to cessation. Cessation of what? Cessation of suffering. Because Buddha's view of reality, of conventional reality, if you like, is that most of us have an underlying experience of dissatisfaction or dukkha on an ongoing basis. Yes, we may achieve things and feel good about them and have wonderful relationships and do wonderful things for others, but often we come back to this sort of gnawing sense of, you know, there's got to be more to life. And so how do we um, overcome this dukkha? Well, through practicing the Dharma. So Buddha's teachings really, what I really love about them is, it's like the ultimate self-development program, Buddhism. Wherever you are in your life and in, in the world, there are some Buddhist applications that would be helpful for you. So whether you're kind of dealing with something really traumatic that you've just been through, or whether you're just dealing with this kind of sense that there's got to be more to life than this, there are tools. And these tools take you from where you are to a sense or a reality of a much wider purpose and a much more spectacular purpose than I think most people ever dream they're capable of or that even exist. And Buddhism takes you all the way to basically becoming a fully enlightened being with the most extraordinary capacity and capabilities. So I get really excited about it because I've never come across teachings that are more ambitious in scope. And also what's exciting to me is that it's not just some kind of person who's popped up who's thought of all this stuff, you know, 10 years ago in Los Angeles. This is stuff that's been tried and tested for millennia. And we have a whole living lineage of people who've walked the path before us. And so that's the reason that I get excited by it, because it's a tried and tested, I guess, what, what you can say. Mm. And you mentioned a few of your books, and I must say some of those titles... <laughs> They're so fantastic. <laughs> they really are. They're not forgettable. Hurry up and meditate and Buddhism for busy people. But there was one you didn't mention. Mindfulness is better than chocolate. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, I wasn't going to mention all of them. But yeah, mindfulness is better than chocolate, which of course is a false dichotomy. You do not have to choose between mindfulness and chocolate. In fact, one of my favorite things to do when I do group teachings is to mindfully get people to sit and enjoy a lint chocolate. So we all sit there like a group of, I don't know, 10, 20, 30, it doesn't matter how many people. Mm -hmm. And we all ritualistically undo the little wrapper and smell it and really focus on, just like if you're meditating, but the object of your meditation is the chocolate. Smell it and then put it to your lips, feel the impact. So using all the senses and then finally put it in your mouth, but no, don't bite into it. Allow it to moisten a bit and get a bit warm and then start to liquefy. And then bite. are you starting to salivate? I love uh, chocolate. <laughs> I do love chocolate. <laughs> Most people do. And so the thing is that we then mindfully eat chocolate and many people say, oh, yes, I'd forgotten how wonderful it is. And they'll contrast it to their experience over the most recent you know, period of their Christmas or Easter or whatever, where they shove the whole of these down their neck without really paying much attention to it. And so chocolate is so much more wonderful when we are mindful, when we pay attention to it. And it's the same with, I have this concept of winefulness. It's the same with wine. It doesn't matter what sensory experience you're having, when we focus on it, it becomes a much more intense, vivid experience. So anyway, that book, Why Mindfulness is Better Than Chocolate, was essentially just a dive into what exactly is mindfulness, how does it work, how can we cultivate it in our day-to-day -day life.
I'd like to go into that a little bit more because I do practice meditation quite diligently, I guess you could say um, it is a priority. And I find that I can find so much more joy and so much more connection in everything that I do in life in general. And then if I'm not being mindful, if I'm thinking about something else, it's like I'm not really living. I'm somewhere else. You do mention in your book, Enlightenment to Go, which as you know, I adore, that practice is quite demanding, I guess, if the practice is ongoing. It's a discipline, yes. It's a discipline. And yet the rewards to me far exceed the practice and the discipline because for me, it's like being alive. It's like, well, I'm alive. If I'm either caught up in some sort of recycled thinking patterns or I'm actually alive whether I'm enjoying a piece of chocolate or just enjoying nature or Mm. even the work I'm doing whatever I'm doing or not doing just being present to it and it's not always easy there is (laughs) it's true the human aspect of suffering and things it is the practice as you said of overcoming that so Yeah, I'd like to talk a little bit more about mindfulness because I just can't see how it isn't possibly one of the most important things in life, really. Well, I would argue it is one of the most important things. And one thing that I like to do to make it very, very simple and understandable for people is that, you know, in our society, we accept that just because you don't have a diagnosable illness doesn't necessarily mean that you're in optimal physical shape. Mm-hmm. And you could be a couch potato who spends his or her life lying around binging on Netflix and drinking beers and eating the wrong kind of stuff. And you wouldn't be ill, but nor would you be in optimal physical shape. In fact, you'd probably be in quite poor physical shape. We accept in our society that if you want to be in optimal physical shape, you actually need to exercise. You need to get out there. It doesn't matter what you do, whether it's swimming or cycling or running. It doesn't matter specifically, but you need to do something to improve your cardiovascular fitness enhance your weight-bearing skills or discipline and also to enhance your flexibility and those are kind of biomarkers of a physically robust person what we are not so good at recognizing in our society is exactly the same phenomenon exists in relation to your mind just because you haven't been diagnosed with say depression or anxiety or stress does not necessarily mean that you're in optimal mental shape if you want to be in optimal mental shape you need to exercise and that exercise is actually We call it meditation because, Mm -hmm. as you know from your own experience, meditation isn't just a question of sitting down and zoning out and thinking nothing. You actually are very actively engaged in Mm -hmm. focusing on your chosen object of meditation, whether that's a breath or a mantra or a visualization. Once again, it doesn't matter what the specifics are. They all have certain common themes to them, which is relaxation of body and mental focus combined. It's a unique state. And when we do that and do that regularly, just as the person who exercises regularly is far better at dealing with whatever life throws their way physically speaking they can run up steps they can carry heavy luggage they can do unexpected things that it won't throw them off they'll be quite capable of dealing with it in the same way if we are mentally disciplined and practice meditation we are far better at dealing with whatever life throws our way psychologically speaking we are more psychologically robust resilient and capable of dealing with things that may cause other people to be depressed anxious stressed out or whatever So there is a direct parallel between training the body and training the mind. And mind training is about meditation and practicing mindfulness. And as you just said, when you practice meditation and mindfulness regularly, you see the results in myriad different ways. You've already mentioned that you just, the vividness and richness and intensity with which you live is enhanced. And that's because of, you get rid of what I call thought pollution, all this bullshit that we all tend to think night and day 
you know, you'll just have slightly less of it in your mind and you can enjoy a certain amount of clarity. It's just like you know, the difference between smoke filling the environment versus a smoke free. So there's a clarity there. There's a lady who came to a course I once did who said she had to pull her car over to the side of the road on her way to the class. It was a six week program. I think this is week three because she loved music, she loved classical music. And there's a piece of music she particularly enjoyed. And she said she had to pull over to the side of the road because she's actually started to cry. It was just so beautiful. Now, she'd heard that piece of music a thousand times before, but something moved her about it. And clearly, the music hadn't changed. It was the same track on the same device. It was her response that had changed. And it had changed because she was hearing it anew and afresh. There's been some fascinating research that's done that shows that music students who practice mindfulness and meditation are actually able to approach very well-known pieces afresh because they have that child's mind, as sometimes it's called, as Dalai Lama talks about. And Dalai Lama is a wonderful manifestation of a child's mind. Not childish, but childlike in the sense that you're experiencing something for the first time. And that sense of vividness and excitement and wow is communicated to those around you because you can't believe what's happening. But that's only one manifestation of a well-trained mind. And others are that we tend to be a lot more creative. This has been scientifically shown that people are more creative when they meditate more regularly. And the way they show this is by doing something called the remote associate test, where people are given like words like yellow and curved, and they have to come up with a whole lot of things that might be yellow and curved, like banana, for example, but all sorts of other ones. And people who meditate regularly come up with more options than people who don't. I could bang on all day about the wonders of practicing meditation and mindfulness, but these are just some of the typical ways that people benefit. The most heavily researched way, of course, I haven't mentioned, but it's stress management. When people meditate regularly, they just, it's like you're wearing an invisible suit. It builds up over a period of time. And so the kinds of things that cause you to feel stressed out before no longer do so. And there's a wonderful Buddhist sage called Shanti Deva in that book called Enlightenment to Go that you referred to, because I pulled out a hundred of his, my favorite quotes of his, and one of them is along the lines, although I can't cover the world with leather to avoid stepping on thorns, I can wear leather on the soles of my feet. Mm-hmm. Meaning that you can't control reality, but you can control the way you experience reality. And so that's one of the key takeaways from practicing mindfulness and meditation is that you're now saying, I'm going to take control of the way I experience reality. And it's such a simple thing, but such a profound thing. It is. It really is. It's an inner world authority. That's what I feel I've learned. It was when I started meditating and I started to recognize that I actually have a choice in this moment how to respond to this situation. And I began to see my responses changing or even probably better said, less reactivity. That is in itself calmness. That's what I found. And that extends to healthier and happier relationships. (laughs) It extends to everything. When we are reactive, we basically, everything's knee-jerk reaction. And when we're responsive, we can still react the same way we would have, but we also think, well, I could also do A, B, and C. So we're buying choice, if you like. There's one corporate person who came to a session I gave who said, at the end of it, you've given me one second. And I thought it was a bit of an odd statement to make. And he said, one second in which to decide what to do rather than just doing it. So that was his way of saying, I'm not going to be, I'm less reactive, I'm more responsive. But going back to what you said, Jenny, about choice, you know, Viktor Frankl, one of the most famous psychiatrists of the last century, set up the Fourth Viennese School, and he was a Holocaust survivor. He actually survived Auschwitz, and he saw people dying all around him. He was very young at the time. He had first direct-hand experience of what it's like 
to be in the most traumatizing and horrific experiences mm. uh, or situation. And he said, even in the worst situations, we still have choice, choice about your attitude towards the thing. The, he said that I think something like the last human freedom is the freedom of choice. And in choosing a particular attitude, it's something that we all have. And that's something that people tend to forget, especially when we're experiencing suffering, such as being forced to stay at home because of coronavirus or whatever. Nobody's forcing your attitude. Your attitude towards that can be incredibly positive or it can be very negative. And it's all up to you. you know, nobody's making you feel anything. Many people are unaware of that freedom there, which is tragic. Mm. It is. This could be an opportunity to spend more time in the inner world. I would say we're almost being forced to withdraw, to contemplate, to come back to ourselves and our families and, and maybe think what's important to me and to my loved ones and yeah, and reconnect with ourselves. It's like enforced retreat almost. Yes. And time. There's no, no more excuses. I haven't got time to meditate. <laughs> exactly. People always say, I haven't got time to meditate. I know, frankly, it's a bullshit argument because I know that if I said to somebody, I'll pay you a million dollars if you meditate for the next six weeks every morning for 10 minutes, I know that somehow they would find the time. <laughs> so it's a question of motivation. Are you motivated to meditate? And what they're actually saying is I'm not that motivated. Yes. I often think about that too because we've got time to do so many things and invest extended hours in doing whether it be going to the gym or even reading a book even doing good things watching tv cooking a meal there's so much time to do these things but yet to take time to just sit and be still even if it is just 10 minutes or half an hour mm. tell me why why is it so hard to sit for a full i find an hour of meditation it does take practice sometimes i get there sometimes even more but what is it in us, do you think, that the people who can't sit for, let's say, 10 minutes, literally can't, I've seen it happen, they tell me they can't. What do you say to that? Mm. I would say that actually you can, but just approach it in baby steps. So maybe you only need to sit for two minutes to begin with. Mm. It's important, though, to get rid of this word can't. One of the most frequent experiences I have is we'll go out socially, my wife and I, and somebody will say to me at some kind of you know, drinks thing or whatever, oh, hi, David, I'm, I believe you're into meditation. And I'll say yes. And then they'll say, oh, I tried that once, didn't work for me, my mind's just too active. And it's almost like a badge of honor, you know, I'm, my mind's far too busy for that kind of thing. Maybe you more kind of less busy people can sit down, but not for the likes of me. And to me, it's a bit like somebody saying, oh, hi, David, I hear you go to the gym. Uh, yes, I do. Oh, I tried that once, didn't work for me, um, my body's just too puny. <laughs> I mean, they're basically saying the same thing. They're basically saying a practice that will benefit your that your benefit your mind is not available to me because my mind is just too active. And it's simply not true. The fact is we can all train our mind, but training requires discipline. And that is something that we tend to resist. Like you're saying earlier, you know, we could go to the gym more often if we really wanted to. We could exercise more. We could also eat a lot more healthily, most of us. There are so many things we know are good for us that we tend to resist. Why? Because of willpower, the self-discipline. And all of us has to find the right balance that we're comfortable with. Some people benefit from having had very strict upbringings where they were taught high levels of emotional intelligence, delayed gratification. And others of us came from very indulged childhoods where it's far more difficult 
to actually discipline yourself because you didn't get into the habit of doing it. It's a habitual thing. So if you, if somebody really can see the benefit of meditation but despairs of their ability to sit down for 10 minutes, I'd say, well, sit down for five minutes. But don't say, I'm not going to sit down. Hmm. Just sit down for five minutes because there will come a time when you'll actually spend a couple of minutes engaged in meditation and think, gosh, I was actually focusing on just my breath hmm. for a moment. Actually, I now feel somehow a bit different as a result of doing it. And then baby steps allow it to build up. So that's why I always encourage people starting out just to do 10-minute sessions or quarter-an-hour sessions and then let it build up organically. Don't kind of force the pace. But that's the way I started myself back in 1994, 10 minutes of breath counting. And I didn't force myself. Nobody told me I should be doing more. But after a while, 10 minutes didn't feel like quite long enough and quarter of an hour felt better. And actually got a friend who's just started who's going through the same thing. It just naturally grows. I found having a bit of a motivation. I, I wanted to connect more deeply with nature and communicate with the animals. And also, actually, I, you, you've written a book on this too. <laughs> I noticed uh, discovering, exploring consciousness and astral travel. I just, meditation has so many benefits. We could just talk on that forever, really, couldn't we? It goes deeper and deeper. It does. There are so many benefits. There are physiological benefits. For example, when we meditate, one of the first things that happen beneath our threshold of awareness, we're not aware of it, we start producing cortisol and adrenaline, which are the kind of fight and flight and ramp us up neurotransmitters. And we start producing endorphins. Endorphins are immune boosting neurotransmitters. So if you want to be healthy, meditate. We also produce a lot more serotonin. As you may know, most antidepressants are SSRIs, serotonin, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, we can give ourselves a natural antidepressant in the morning by meditating. And similarly, when we meditate, we produce a lot more telomerase, which is an enzyme that supports the telomeres, which cap our DNA, which promotes longevity. There are so many different elements, and it's been shown that people who meditate for five years or more, not in one session, I always hasten to add, they have a biological age that is 12 years less than their chronological age when their DHEA is tested. So there are so many physiological benefits. And then, of course, the psychological benefits we've touched on already, the stress and the innovation, the clarity, the vividness, the richness, the intensity, and interpersonal relationships because you, mm. instead of just asking, waiting for the person to stop talking so you can ask them what you want to ask them, you actually pay attention to what they're saying <laughs> and engage with them. It's been shown that when people meditate regularly, they're better at reading the nonverbal behavior of other people. This absence of thought pollution, you know, there's more clarity. It's almost like getting rid of those filthy glasses that you're wearing. You can actually see something. And then, of course, it goes a whole lot deeper. We start to ask ourselves, what is the nature of my mind when it's free of agitation and free of dullness? And we realize there's this amazing clarity about it. And we think, where does this clarity begin? Where does it end? Is it the size of my head? Is it bigger than that? Does it have the capacity to be influenced by other be beings' minds? Kind of ironic to me that for such complex beings, we need to do this in order to put ourselves on the same page as animals. Because animals do not appear to suffer from excessive mental agitation. There's no sign of that they do. And when we are in the presence of animals, they're nonverbal beings. They read us very, very very easily, both physically and you might say energetically, for want of a better word, they can tell when there's a change or a shift of energy, which is why I jokingly call myself a pussy magnet, because uh, wherever I am in the house <laughs> meditating, the cats will appear. They'll just come and sit beside me because cats love it when you, not all cats, not every day, but generally speaking, and also not only cats, animals do like it when humans are in a state of 
calm and peaceful contemplation. And so they're drawn to us when you meditate. And that's why when we are able to be in that state, out in nature, on the mindful safaris that we go out on in Africa, it's an extraordinary thing. Mm-hmm. And the game viewers, uh, the game rangers often say to us, I don't know how it is you guys always see so many wonderful things. Like we saw three herds of over 100 elephants came down to water when we were at Zambezi National Park a couple of years ago. And we get so close to lions. And once this herd of elephants literally walked past our vehicle, we could have touched them. But they were totally relaxed and they weren't aggressive. We could tell from their body language. And I really believe that it's the result of the fact we've just come off 20 minutes, 30 minutes of meditation. We're in this wonderful state. And there's just something that animals just pick up. They would resonate with that. You know the nature of the human mind and mind really well. And what would you say the main difference is the mind of an animal and the mind of a human? Well, of course, there are so many different types of animals, all of which have got their own minds, like a bird's mind would be different from a, like a lion's mind in shape and performance and so forth. But I think innate to all of them, there's consciousness, there's sentience, and there's also a certain level of activity. And I, I think the fundamental difference is that our minds tend to be a whole lot busier than animals' minds. More subtle communication becomes possible. Conceptual thoughts that we have, we tend to think in terms of, of language. We have words and we create concepts out of them. Animals don't have language. They are more about image and feelings and sensation. And when we are on the same page as animals, we are both more capable of projecting sensation and image to them as we are of receiving symbol sensation and images from them so animal communicators and there are strange bunch animal communicators i mean there's some people who clearly have an extraordinary capacity to communicate and there are other people who are highly skeptical about what they tend to have in common is the sense that the way they communicate is not in words it's in symbols and feelings and sensation which makes perfect sense when you think about it so i often think we spend a lot of time talking to our pets constantly chattering to our cats do we ever stop and listen to them and how Mm. tragic would it be you know put yourself in their shoes or lack of shoes what would it be like to be a cat whose owner appears to be you know completely adoring of you constantly chattering and doing their best to their limited capabilities to make you feel happy but never stopping for one second to listen to something you want to communicate This is why I encourage people who do have pets to just quieten down. And nothing saddens me more than seeing people take their dogs for a walk, supposedly, but they're hunched over their mobile device. Mm. The dog's sniffing and stopping and wanting to lift its leg, and they're sometimes stopping and sometimes dragging away. And they're not actually present with their dog while walking the dog. They're being present to something else which is of very little importance. That dog is only going to be with them for potentially seven years, maybe even less, depending on the age of the dog. And yet, that precious, precious this time if you put together all the hours that you spend in one-to-one time with your dog it's not a whole lot and they're squandering that precious time looking on their social media or or even not even that i just think how sad when their relationship with their pet would be so much more enriched if they could just put down their device and just focus on being with the dog and trying to let go of their own thoughts and just tune in to what the dog might be tuning into maybe the dog's actually got something useful to tell them you know you hear stories of people only afterwards realized that their cat kept prodding them in their tummy or the dog kept snuffling them in their tummy. And then they had some diagnosis with some illness. And, you know, dogs are far more, and cats are far more perceptive in a normal sense way than we are. And a dog can tell the difference, the equivalent of two tablespoons in an Olympic-sized swimming pool. 
mm. of some liquid, a dog can tell the difference. You know, we couldn't possibly in a million years. And that's why dogs are used for baggage handling, you know, checking for drugs and diabetes and epilepsy and all kinds of things. Dogs can, can just sniff a person and immediately detect a shift in their blood sugar level, for example. And cats can hear two octaves higher than us. You know, they can hear rats and mice and bats outside. We think it's a perfectly beautiful still night. The cat thinks, what's that terrible party going on next door? <laughs> they, can, they can hear things that are, we're oblivious to. So we shouldn't neglect the fact that, that animals have senses that go well beyond ours and they may have something useful to tell us. Well, they're highly, highly intelligent beings and they're not as distracted as we are, are they? <laughs> Well, it's interesting from around the world how so many people are talking about, like, for example, being able to see the Himalayas for the first time in 30 years in India, and people being able to see fish in the canals of Venice, and the sky is actually blue above Beijing, and there's a village in Wales where goats are overrunning it. And I was speaking to a friend in England yesterday in uh, Dorset who said, the birds seem so much louder this year, and it's because the ambient noise level has dropped they can now hear their rivals. And so they're having to up their volume levels to kind of drown them out. So it is amazing how this kind of enforced experiment of reducing economic activity for several weeks has had this extraordinary rapid and pronounced impact on what's going on in the natural world. And, and a lot of people are really touched by it and are joyful about it and happy about it, sadly knowing that it'll, it's probably going to slip away once people go back to work. But maybe the question will remain in people's mind, well, Maybe we can try and preserve some of that wonderfulness. And how do we do that? That's right. Maybe now that we've actually seen the impact we have and the better impact we can have, maybe we can make it a last. It does sound amazing when you describe it like that, what's happening around the world with nature. It's amazing. Because <laughs> we've mm. stopped driving our cars so much. <laughs> well, the thing is that this comes at an economic cost and that's something which mm. is unaffordable at the moment. But perhaps we can move, perhaps it's almost like we've had a taste of what's possible mm. and that'll act as an incentive, which wasn't there before because it was all theoretical. But now we know mm. these are the real impact and maybe we can work towards uh, more sustainable ways of living. It does sound beautiful and it sounds like a nice vision to hold and awareness. Mm, exactly. I want to ask you, how did you come to be involved in Buddhism? And you're originally from Africa and I think you grew up in England though, didn't you? No, I was born and brought up in what is now Zimbabwe, was Rhodesia at the time, a British colony. And then I went to university in South Africa, next was a neighbouring country. And in the, at the age of 28, I migrated from Johannesburg to London, mm. where I, I continued to work in PR, which was always my, my career. And I got involved in Buddhism because I, first of all, got involved in meditation. And I actually had the experience of getting what I thought were ant bites on my legs when I was working for a PR company in London. And this little ant was biting my left leg, then my right one, then my backs. And these bites got worse and worse until eventually one day my entire back was just covered in hives. And I realized this is not an ant bite at all. It's me coming from Africa projecting. And so I went to the doctor who prescribed antihistamine which are highly effective. He said, anytime you get bitten, just take one of these, you'll be fine. And so I did. And they worked a treat. But I realized, you know, after taking the umpteenth antihistamine pill, I can't go around for the rest of my life with a bottle of pills in my pocket waiting to feel itchy. I'm just masking the symptoms. I'm not even treating the cause. I don't even know what the cause is. It just so happened that a naturopath's brochure arrived on a doorstep saying this person could deal with allergies and intolerances. And so I went to see her and 
she pointed out that maybe I was drinking too much coffee <laughs> and maybe I have a caffeine intolerance, which I do. But she also said, you know, you are systemically stressed and the best thing you can do is to meditate. And I'd never meditated in my life before. I'd studied it a bit as part of my psych degree at university, but I felt a bit of a charlatan sitting in our flat directly under the Heathrow flight path the dull rumble every 30 seconds as another plane came in, trying to count my breaths in cycles of four, which is what I did. But I persisted, and after about six weeks, I discovered for myself that this was working. I was feeling less stressed out by things, and there was a distinct improvement in my capacity to deal with stress. So that was what set me on the path. And being a naturally kind of inquisitive person, after keeping on and deciding this is a useful thing, I was reading around on the subject, and it just seemed to me that Buddhists had the kind of inside track that it came to meditation. And so I read and read more and more stuff about Buddhism. And then when I moved to Australia, I had luxury of more time. And so I started attending classes. And it was a real sense of homecoming, if you like, that this all resonates completely with me. And I'm coming now to the kind of the source, if you like, of all this wisdom. So that was how I started meditating. And that took me to Buddhism, which in fact is not an uncommon experience among many Buddhists. You find that they try something, it works, and they want to find out more. Because in Buddhism, meditation is only one of many, many tools in the toolbox. It's a foundational tool, it's uh, essential, but it's only one of, of a number. And so once you get into it, you think, hmm, I want more. So what, what other techniques are there available to enhance my experience of reality? And just on stress, I'm not that fond of this term stress management because it almost sounds as though we're trying to make it a normal part of life. But when we look at nature, stress isn't natural. It is a response to a stimulus, of course, but we kind of make out as if it's something we have to do all the time and just keep on top of it. Surely that changed for you <laughs> when you started meditating completely yeah well the key thing is that stress is not necessarily a negative thing at all stress mm. has a very useful role to play when st stress is a physiological as well as a psychological thing and when we are stressed out to the max executive functioning of our brain closes down our amygdala ramps up we produce tons of adrenaline and cortisol and we're now in so-called fight or flight mode and when you're confronted by a saber-toothed tiger or the tribe next door you're coming over to rape and pillage, you know, it's very useful to be stressed out because you now have enormous reserves of strength and energy, for example. So stress in itself is not a bad thing. What is a bad thing is when we have constant low-level stress ongoing, and it's been shown to be incredibly damaging to our brains and to our bodies, you know, it can be the precursor to depression, Alzheimer's, all kinds of negative things can flow on from living with a constant state of stress. And so I think that's the problem with stress. It's not a problem in itself. It's when we have exposed to low levels of it on an ongoing basis. And the good thing about meditation mindfulness is it helps us ameliorate or mitigate those effects so that we can be on the same receiving end as of the stimuli that we were before. But instead of producing adrenaline and cortisol, we're just far more relaxed about it. You know, you don't see the Dalai Lama looking stressed out very much. That's what I like about Buddhism. You, it's not just theoretical. You can point to individuals and say, what about him? What about him? And I use him because he's a, as an example, because he's well-known. But you could say the same of many lamas, less well-known people. But my own wonderful lamas that I know, you know, I don't see them stressed. They, they don't get stressed. No. What does lama mean? What is the actual definition of lama? Lama is a title that comes from two words. The Tibetans like to distill the maximum meaning into every syllable. 
la means high and ma means mother. So, and high refers especially to wisdom and to knowledge. So it's like a combination of access to high wisdom and the nurturing qualities of a mother. So the position of a lama is somebody who's going to nurture you from a position of wisdom uh, to manifest your own wisdom. So it's quite a beautiful word. Lama can also mean very heavy or very loaded, uh, loaded with qualities and wisdom and knowledge. So it's got multiple meanings, but the first two lars is the main meaning. Compassion comes naturally, does it, when this expression of our true nature, you often speak of the true mind, I think it's the way you say it. Compassion comes from there, caring for others. There's a lot in Buddhism about caring for others. Yeah, the understanding is when we get rid of all this mental agitation and are able to abide in the nature of our own primordial mind, this mind that is and there's no beginning and no end and it's just bare consciousness if you like the the natural qualities of that mind are one of of great love for all beings in the sense that there's a fundamental recognition that we are all the same for happiness we all wish to avoid suffering we all put a high value on our own life we don't want it to end you know we're all the same in these fundamental regards there's no difference between us that kind of recognition and therefore the feeling that arises from that recognition of love is considered to be a natural part of your primordial consciousness. And from that love arises compassion because compassion is basically the wish to free others from suffering or the wish that others should be free from suffering. And we wouldn't wish others to be free from suffering if we didn't love them. We'd be quite happy for them to remain suffering if we thought they deserved it or whatever. One arises from the other. Compassion arises from love and love arises from understanding and experiencing and abiding in the true nature of your mind. So if you're like far from being a very intellectual or cerebral exercise where we're basically trying to let go of thought and just remain in a state of vacuity, it's the opposite that's happening. We're letting go of these thoughts, most of which are all about me, myself and I. We're all complete narcissists when it comes down to it. And we are letting go of those thoughts and abiding in the nature of consciousness that's free from thought. And as we deepen into that state, we awaken to the reality that the true nature of our own minds is one of pure great love and pure great compassion. And pure and great have specific meanings. Pure means we're not doing it because we're expecting some sort of payoff. You know, you don't love somebody because you want them to love you back. It's free from attachment. And great meaning not just for a few people that we happen to like, even criminals have a few people that they like, their henchmen and so forth. So it's not a kind of a tainted, it's not relating to inner circle, it's, it's all beings. So pure great love and pure great compassion. And all beings, just to clarify, from ants to elephants to humans to snakes, yes, all beings. Yes, well, what's available through our very limited senses, it means all humans and all animals. But the Buddhist notion is that our senses are very limited. And there are other dimensions of reality that we can't perceive, but they do exist. For example, even many people out there, I think many scientists would say, with the chance of there not being any life outside us in the universe is extremely small. You know, we live in a limitless universe. Surely there'd be other life forms, whatever they may be elsewhere. And so, yes, we would include those. And we would include, as I said earlier, you know, our, our pets are far more aware of realms of existence that we aren't like bats and rats and mice what about the spirits do exist what about them and so there are other realms of possibility if you like and so when we are talking about wish for other beings to have happiness and to be free from suffering we are not being specific only to humans and animals it's a wish for all beings
Something beautiful I find when I am in deep meditation, when I'm blessed enough to get to this place, it is like I don't even exist. There is no me. And there is something so blissful in that. It's hugely liberating. And this me, this I, it's a, you discover that it's not that you're saying Jenny doesn't exist. Yes, Jenny does exist. It's a label you put on this collection of body parts and mental parts. When you kind of realize that beyond the label, there's nothing there, that is hugely liberating. Mm. And, and that's one of the, I wasn't necessarily going to go there, but this is the teaching of Shunyata. Buddha's arguably his greatest teaching of all is that the way that things exist, and you know, things don't exist, including ourselves, do not exist the way we think they do. And when we have even the tiniest glimpse of that, it's hugely liberating. And there are no words for it. You can't mm. even begin to put into words the joy of that discovery. And it's one of these discoveries which changes everything and changes nothing. It's sometimes likened to, you know, Copernicus who discovered that it wasn't, in fact, the sun that revolves around the earth and all the planets do not revolve around the earth. It's other we revolve around the sun. We're not that important, actually. And so that caused huge consternation, of course, in the church in those days. And he was thrown out and bad things happened to him. But it's the same with Buddha when he discovered the self that we hold so dear to us, we constantly obsess about and what will people think and blah, 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 blah. Well, this self that, that in that particular way, we can't actually find it when we look for it. And it's just such a huge and liberating discovery when we make that. Not as an intellectual construct, and as you say, in that state of meditation. Yeah, because it's like there's no separateness. and But it's also like this illusionary self is out there somewhere and you're right i didn't think of it i can't find it where is it it's just out there somewhere in a way it's a mind state or it's a mind projection yeah it's a mind creation and projection that's exactly what it is there is something there but what it is is your projection there's a chapter in my book and why enlightenment to go which likens us to santa claus Mm. you know when you when you're young father christmas santa you go to see him at the departmental store, you sit on his knee, you're telling him you've been a good girl or a good boy and, and he gives you stuff and you're terribly excited because on Christmas Day you're going to come downstairs or you're going to find presents which Santa has left you. And then when you're a teenager, you go to the same departmental store, you can see the same guy in the same red suit with a rather unconvincing beard and he's still there, but your, the way you construct and conceive of him has come, completely changed. This is the kind of shift that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Another thing I've learned from your book was I want to get my views across or I want to be recognized for something. And then you go, it's time to practice a filter, a wonderful me filter. And as I was right. thinking, I'm thinking that, okay, that, you know, this is bringing mindfulness back into my interactions, a, a wonderful me filter. And then I looked at my cat and I went, you don't wear a wonderful me filter. <laughs> <laughs> They do the opposite, David. <laughs> no, this, I don't know why it is we all have this desperate need to concretize and reify this sense of self, and not only the self, but that the self has certain characteristics and qualities which are very admirable and noble and worthy, and everyone must like it and, and admire. <laughs> and it's all a complete waste of time because you can't really affect people's attitude towards you as much as you think. And the version of yourself that you have is yours alone and your loved ones and people further afield won't necessarily have that version at all. No, no matter what. It comes back to that Santa Claus out there. David, thank you so much. I'm so glad we did get to explore some of the deeper parts of the nature of mind. And going beyond death, I know you wrote about that too. I find that, I mean, I just love it. 
(laughs) (laughs) Well, Jenny, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. And I hope somebody will benefit from this particular podcast. And I'm sure they will definitely be benefiting from your series of podcasts. So thank you for what you're doing in the world. Thank you for spending your precious time listening to this podcast. I really do hope that you enjoyed. You can find some helpful links related to the topics we have discussed, download some freebies and join our Lionheart community by visiting our website lionheartworkshops.com. To view this specific podcast blog, click on podcast at the main menu. Please also share this with friends, hit subscribe and leave us a review so that these ideas can continue to spread. Those pretty little stars help others to find us. The Lionheart Podcast and Lionheart Online Workshops is an online platform and community designed to enhance your health, natural and spiritual well-being. Until next time, please think about how you will embody your Lionheart and reach your highest potential as the amazing human being that you are.